The Mysteries of Watergate. This is Episode 8, John Dean, White House Quisling. I want to talk to you tonight from my heart on a subject of deep concern to every American. Those who hate you don't win unless you hate them. I've been charged with involvement in a full, free, and absolute pardon unto Richard Nixon. What has come to be known as the Watergate Affair. I'm your narrator, John O'Connor, author of Postgate, How the Washington Post Betrayed Deep Throat, Covered Up Watergate, and Began Today's Partisan Advocacy Journalism. In past episodes, we have explored the question of the motives behind the odd Watergate burglary. We've talked of CIA infiltration of the White House and its interest in sex for manipulation of subjects. Unfortunately, Hunt's guilty plea and the limiting of evidence by the appellate court kept the public from learning much of this at trial. While we have focused on the CIA's potential involvement in the burglary, the fact remains that Liddy's presence and use of campaign cash means that this operation had been approved somewhere in the Nixon administration, even if not in the Oval Office. But where and why? Let's now turn to the extremely interesting Watergate actor, John Dean. Preceding the Nazi invasion of Norway during World War II, Germany was aided by a Norwegian military officer who was covertly collaborating with it, Vidkun Quisling. His treachery was so dramatic that the name Quisling is generically used to designate any covertly traitorous member of a governing group. John Dean may well be seen as the Quisling of Watergate, if our view of the scandal is correct. John Dean is clearly the most intriguing of Watergate characters. To some, Dean has been viewed as a Boy Scout caught in bad company. To others, simply a classic squealer. Presently, of course, he is the sainted voice of the anti-conservative rhetoric one finds on CNN and MSNBC. To yet others, however, he is the very embodiment of treachery, a White House counsel who turned on his client. First, he sponsored, it would appear, the burglary, then sucked an unwitting Richard Nixon into its cover-up, and finally, he sold his client out to save his own skin, at least according to those who think that John Dean was the ultimate quizzling. The last of these descriptions is closest to accurate. But why does it make a difference? Because understanding Dean is necessary to a full comprehension of that still ongoing mystery known as Watergate. Understanding Dean's intellectual capability, his true talents, is important. First, he has always been shrewd, albeit on the shady side. Fired from his first job as a lawyer after just four months, for ethical lapses, secretly pursuing a television license in competition with a client. He was then able to obtain a series of jobs through political connections after marrying the daughter of a senator. He had a reputation among his co-workers as an idea thief, to such an extent that some of his colleagues would lock their papers in a drawer before leaving for the night for fear that Dean would co-opt their valuable insights. But in a career marked by cleverness and shrewd calculation, there's little in his background to show his ability to think out a troublesome dispute as would a skillful lawyer. Yet in Watergate, he became the chief legal advisor for the entire White House and CRP Nixon administration team. Without the group relying in any substantial way on outside legal advice, few, if any, observers have done an analysis of what would have happened in Watergate had Dean possessed the experience and training of a good lawyer. We will return to this subject as various events unfold, and in some cases comment on forms of alternative history had prudent legal thinking been employed. 
But for now, let's focus on Dean's place in the Nixon White House hierarchy. John Ehrlichman was a Seattle lawyer who worked for Nixon in the 1968 election, whom Nixon brought with him to the White House. One of Ehrlichman's titles was counselor to the president. In essence, Ehrlichman handled duties normally performed by White House counsel, even though his job was somewhat more elevated than that. Ehrlichman was not in any case particularly well-suited for a job as a political lawyer. He was by all accounts an intelligent man, but he had practiced law in the real estate field in Seattle, meaning he was not a troubleshooter for corporate shenanigans as some lawyers are, nor was he a litigator who understood strategies in dealing with his clients' troubles and conflicts. That said, his loyalty, cunning, and sharp intelligence were valued by Nixon, and soon Ehrlichman was given the added portfolio of heading Nixon's Domestic Affairs Council. So the White House searched for someone to take over the seemingly menial legal duties that had been under Ehrlichman's umbrella, but which he now had to give over to a lower staff lawyer. John Dean, at the time, was a young lawyer on his way up in the bureaucracy in the Justice Department, garnering essentially political positions then occupying one in the Department of Justice. Political appointees in the Department of Justice, as the term implies, do not rise in the organization by litigation skills and experience, as do, quote, line DOJ lawyers who are normally promoted on merit. In the political environs of the Department of Justice, Dean's innate cleverness made him into something of a political star, and he was a natural target for recruitment by the White House for a job which, interestingly, Attorney General John Mitchell advised him to reject. So, Dean went to the White House. Dean, however, like a moth to a flame, could not resist a job that could be made into a very prestigious position. His appointment carried with it the name of White House Counsel, a very overblown title. Unlike White House Counsel and other administrations, Dean had no contact with the president for well over two years on the job. He was essentially a glorified legal flunky, performing menial tasks, but it was shrewd enough to use this position to enhance his power and profile. Dean soon saw that his rise to prominence would greatly depend upon developing some political opposition intelligence capability. He saw that the White House had a great hunger for dirt on its rivals. So as Dean brought in lawyers to serve under him for what he called his law firm, to enhance his profile he sought intelligence responsibilities, a euphemism for harvesting compromising information on opponents. He first caught Nixon's eye as the coordinator of the White House response team to the massive May Day 1971 protests against the Vietnam War, where thousands of demonstrators attempted to close down the city. Dean was an integral part of jailing 10,000 protesters in the practice field of RFK Stadium. This, of course, was an egregious affront to civil liberties, since the vast majority of those arrested were peaceful protesters. The appalling lack of sanitary facilities and attention to civilized constitutional standards turned these arrests into a politically divisive issue. But what was important was that in the eyes of the churlish Nixon and his Oval Office team, Dean had shown his stuff. Dean candidly recounts in his book Blind Ambition, his autobiography, that he sought a role in a campaign-related intelligence for the 1972 campaign. Hopefully, it appears, the beginnings of a more permanent intelligence portfolio. His challenge was that the president's chief of staff, H.R. Haldeman, was the undoubted czar of opposition intelligence within the White House. 
So part of understanding Watergate is understanding Dean's drive to achieve tangible intelligence results during the short time that the campaign would be ongoing and flush with campaign cash. While working for an organization, the CRP, which Haldeman intentionally ignored as the White House czar. In Haldeman's eyes, the campaign was an unattractive, thankless outpost to which he had banished rival John Mitchell and had rid himself of the inept aide Jeb Magruder. So Dean had something of an open field with the CRP and its campaign cash, even though he was still a White House official with no official CRP duties. As we discussed in Episode 2, the FBI had indicated its unwillingness to perform intelligence operations for the White House after placing the controversial Kissinger wiretaps in 1969 and 1970. After the Houston plan bit the dust in July 1970, there was ever more need for an in-house intelligence-gathering capability that went beyond Haldeman's bandwidth as chief of staff. Recognizing this gap, the Oval Office hired a former New York police detective, John Caulfield, to perform investigations for the White House. Caulfield kept under wraps his Runyon-esque gumshoe, Tony Ulasiewicz, a former NYPD police detective with wide connections in the gray, seamy areas of dirt gathering. Nixon, Haldeman, and Ehrlichman were already on their way to building an in-house intelligence and investigative team using Caulfield and Ulasiewicz that would substitute for what they thought to be a recalcitrant FBI. The ambitious dean had used Caulfield and Ulasiewicz on a number of occasions as he sought to build up his own intelligence portfolio with this available resource. But the most noteworthy use of this investigative team, as we near Watergate, occurred in the fall of 1971. In late 1971, a prominent call girl ring had been prosecuted in New York City, gaining notoriety not only because of its rich and famous clientele, but also because it was run by a glamorous, self-promoting madam named Xaviera Hollander. Known in the press as the Happy Hooker, after being busted, she had authored a popular best-selling book. Around October 1971, Dean sent Ulasiewicz via Caulfield to New York City to attempt to get the names of Hollander's clientele, hopefully snaring many prominent Democrats. Presumably, Dean would try to leak the names or otherwise use this information to discredit Nixon's enemies, and at the least boast to the Oval Office that he had this sleaze in his portfolio. Unfortunately for Dean, Ulasiewicz did in fact find prominent demos on the Happy Hooker client roles, but also found many Republicans, rendering the detective's dossier unusable. So the theme of Democrats and hookers we know was intelligence dirt that interested Dean. It would not be unreasonable to see Watergate as simply a continuation of Dean's same hunger for advancement by grabbing such meretricious dirt where he could find it. In that regard, we now turn to a highly illuminating venture by our shady triumvirate of Dean, Caulfield, and Ulasiewicz. After the Happy Hooker venture, perhaps a month later, in or around November of 1971, Dean sent Ulasiewicz on what the detective thought was an odd casing mission. Ulasiewicz was instructed by Caulfield, per Dean, to case the offices of the Democratic National Committee headquarters in the Watergate office building. Ulasiewicz was puzzled by the request, 
later reporting back to the DNC offices, which he managed to walk through, were much like any other offices, with filing cabinets, desks, phones, and the like. It was also, he reported, unprotected, with little security in place. So we ask, what was it that so interested Dean in the fall of 1971 in the Democratic National Committee headquarters? And what was the significance of the timing of Ulasewicz's mission occurring in late fall 1971? We have spoken about the naughty boy and girl talk overheard on the DNC phones, and also about Dean's interest in hooker dirt on Democrats. Was the casing mission of Ulasewicz similar to his happy hooker assignment? We also ask whether and when Dean knew about the referrals from the DNC headquarters. If he did know about them in the fall of 1971, such knowledge would cast an entirely new light on the central question of the Watergate burglary goal. If, in fact, months later, in May and June of 1972, Watergate break-ins were directed toward these referrals, it tends to support the testimony of John Mitchell that he did not authorize the Watergate break-in, since there was no indication Mitchell would be interested in scandalous information. It also supports the buttressing idea that the Watergate break-ins were not campaign-related events. If not, Richard Nixon may have been lured into his clear but insubstantial obstruction of justice liability under false pretenses, thinking that he was protecting unknown persons in his administration who had performed silly, useless campaign spying. Put differently, if Richard Nixon had known that the Watergate burglaries were not campaign-related, he would not have suspected, as he did, that someone in his inner circle was involved and therefore would not be as motivated to engage in a cover-up. Rather, he would have investigated the identity of the bungling junior aide who foolishly sponsored this. Indeed, Mark Felt, in his first meeting after the arrests with his superior Patrick Gray, importuned Gray to urge the president to do just that, to wit, to help the FBI find the foolish junior aides who sponsored this amateurish venture. Dean's Ulasewicz casing mission of the DNC also shed some light on his recruitment of G. Gordon Liddy to join CRP around that very same time. In November and December 1971, the CRP was looking for a general counsel, mainly to handle fundraising issues, as a new campaign contribution disclosure law was to begin effective April 7, 1972. Dean's very capable associate and right-hand man, Fred Fielding, was being interviewed about his interest in the job. Dean discouraged Fielding's hire and instead pushed Liddy toward the job. Liddy was known as a capable former FBI agent, but also an unguided missile with the mindset that he would do anything to help country and cause, regardless of its legality. He was very close in his plumber's unit work with Howard Hunt, whose stories of undercover intrigue greatly influenced him. So Dean would, in essence, get a twofer. The eager Liddy, as well as his influential buddy Hunt, using the budget of the soon-to-be-cash-rich CRP to help with daring investigative assignments to fill Dean's intelligence portfolio. Although the CRP general counsel, one would think, should care mainly about fundraising— Dean talked Liddy into accepting the position by emphasizing the sensitive covert intelligence gathering aspects of the job, promising him, quote, half a million for openers, unquote, for a well-funded intelligence program. Liddy eagerly accepted after Dean made this promise. Because Dean could credibly be seen as both a Mitchell man, since Dean came from Mitchell's DOJ, 
and a Haldeman man. Dean was very close to Gordon Strayan, the chief aide to Haldeman. Dean's promise of a generous budget was credible to Liddy. Watergate began, by all conventional accounts, with Liddy's presentation of his, quote, security, unquote, plan to Mitchell, while Mitchell was still attorney general, the first such presentation occurring January 27, 1972. Mitchell had planned on soon leaving to head the CRP, temporarily being managed by Jeb Magruder, a former Haldeman aide. But in substance and effect, in late January and early February, Mitchell was not only attorney general, but it was acting de facto as head of the president's re-election campaign. The first presentation of Liddy to Mitchell on January 27, 1972, contained a vast and bewildering array of proposed illegal acts, from wiretapping to kidnapping, even involving a chase plane to electronically monitor another opponent's plane, all stitched together as part of Liddy's so-called gemstone proposal, professionally presented on impressive CIA-prepared charts. After the acerbic Mitchell turned down the plan, Liddy, encouraged by Dean to believe the main issue was cost, quickly followed with a second plan on February 4, scaled down to half a million dollars from the original million-dollar presentation. The second plan was not accepted by Mitchell, and although the Attorney General was known to be an impenetrable stone face, anyone with an ounce of intuition would have known that he was horrified by the plans. We do note that for years, commentators have assumed that these wild schemes were hatched solely in Liddy's imagination. In fact, they revealed the thinking of one conversant with the latest CIA techniques, and may well have been the brainchild of Howard Hunt, looking for White House approval of a whole variety of imaginative CIA operations and techniques. To be sure, Dean later claimed to have been so offended by Liddy's February 4 presentation that he immediately went to Haldeman's office to tell him that he was disavowing anything Liddy was doing. This later claim of sanctimony does not pass the laugh test, however. It was Dean who encouraged the first plan of January 27, far more outrageous than the February 4 scheme, and Liddy's book, which was not published until 1980, does not reveal Dean as being horrified at the plan, so much as chastened by Mitchell's obvious displeasure. In any case, Haldeman disputes being told any such thing by Dean, and given his highly meticulous note-taking, Haldeman has the better side of the dispute. In summary, it does not appear that Dean was disavowing Liddy or his fatuous schemes, but was simply acknowledging that Mitchell was not buying what Liddy, with Dean's encouragement, was selling. Liddy's book supports Haldeman, since Liddy claims Dean simply encouraged a cheaper plan at the conclusion of the second meeting, where, once again, the Attorney General's disapproval was manifest to everyone but perhaps Liddy. At the very least, Dean's participation in Liddy's absurdly illegal proposals made it clear that Dean had approved the schemes, and, if Liddy is to be believed, that Dean remained the driving force behind what became known as the Watergate burglaries. For the moment, We will skip the immediate events preceding each burglary and concentrate on Dean's role in the cover-up. Let's assume for the moment, we will delve into more evidence later, that Dean was a sponsor of the burglary. Howard Hunt testified before Congress in 1974 that one of his principals was Dean. This testimony garnered no headlines, and there was no analysis by Congress or the President as to the implications of his testimony, 
which should have been shocking considering Dean's dramatic protestations of innocence in his televised 1973 Senate testimony. By the time Hunt so testified to no great headline, Nixon was on his way out of office, while the rest of his aides would be tried for cover-up. Dean had already pleaded guilty and was about to be sentenced. This testimony of Hunt meant little to the public, and certainly the media had no motive to slander Dean and star anti-Nixon witness. But if in fact Dean was a sponsor, this tends not only to exculpate Mitchell and vicariously Nixon on the burglary scheme, but also points to a non-campaign-related dirt-gathering project. So let's slow down a bit and reflect on the possibility that Dean may have been the main political sponsor of these burglaries, even though his superiors may not have known that. We know that President Nixon committed two clear acts of obstruction— On June 23, 1972, he directed the CIA to call the FBI off its Mexican money trail investigation. And on March 21, 1973, Nixon at least arguably agreed to Dean's plan to raise $1 million in hush money for Hunt. Both of these two acts were carried out on the advice of Dean. But Dean was likely protecting himself more than the president in each case. At the same time, Dean had concealed from all in the Oval Office his apparent role in the sponsorship of the burglary, which, if known, would have caused him to walk the plank. Such a role, of course, exculpates John Mitchell and Charles Colson, both continually suspect in Nixon's eyes in spite of their denials. Now we say Dean's, quote, apparent role, unquote, because Dean today denies directing or sponsoring the burglaries. We do not take on the burden of here marshalling all the evidence against Dean. It suffices to say that there is a live issue, given Dean's continuing denial, but that strong evidence, in our view, points to his act of sponsorship. We will not here attempt to do more to resolve this issue, which will be treated further when we discuss Liddy's later book. But if Dean was so involved, then contrary to everything Dean had told Nixon, and upon which Nixon had relied— There was not only provable CRP involvement, but also White House culpability in the burglary, even if through this junior aide, Dean himself. If Dean was involved, in other words, he concealed that important fact from his client. If the burglary was directed at sexual talk, and he knew it, he hid that evidence as well. Highly exculpatory evidence for his client, the president. Finally, this seeming involvement of Dean, which he still denies, would have severely handicapped his credibility and reliability as a witness against Nixon and Nixon's top aides. We said earlier that we would talk from time to time about the blunders of the Nixon administration in defeating Watergate charges. Dean's early legal advice, or better put, his failure to give good advice, ultimately resulted in the only removal of a president in United States history. As we noted earlier, Dean was not only potentially personally involved in the burglary, and thus legally conflicted, but also had little skill or experience as either a litigator or a corporate troubleshooter. But Liddy presented any skilled litigator with an easy way to mitigate both White House and CRP guilt in the burglary. Liddy had informed Dean that he would do anything Dean wanted to the point he volunteered to stand on a street corner and be shot. If Liddy merely had his lawyer admit to the public that Liddy had gone rogue because he was convinced that the Democratic National Committee had important national security information related to Fidel Castro or some similar justification, this would be consistent 
with the use of campaign cash by Liddy. But Dean was not an experienced troubleshooter and ignored an obvious fall guy in Liddy. In this episode, we have discussed Dean's blind ambition to feather his intelligence nest with scandalous intelligence on Democrats. But how does this desire explain the inexplicable second break-in? Wasn't he already hearing what naughty talk as was available? And one other area that needs explanation if we were to construct a credible narrative. Why would the CIA have any interest in prostitution referrals? And why would either Dean or the CIA have the burglars break in a second time? The answer to this question holds a key to our nation's most impactful scandal. Thank you for listening. I have just completed a book on the same subject, entitled The Mysteries of Watergate, What Really Happened. While it covers the material in our podcast, I have added two chapters of contextual materials and removed the repetition needed for a podcast. For those enjoying this series, it will serve as a valuable historical reference. For your non-listening friends, it will prove enlightening and entertaining. Thank you for your support.